The Stages podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of the lands on which our artists and audiences meet. We pay our respect to past, present and emerging elders. We acknowledge the important role that art has played on these lands for thousands of years and feel privileged to work alongside artists continuing the creative practice of one of the oldest surviving cultures in the world. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives... Then the next block further down there was the Royal, then the Prince Edward was right opposite the Royal, then the Savoy. And we used to get fined if you were late for the half hour and fined for misbehaving on stage. Just for God's sake, do it better. (laughs) Sometimes that's all you can say. But when you've gone through that, you do get a lot of ego. And you go out there knowing that the one thing that's different every time is that audience. I didn't wake up until... I was in emergency. I was around the uh, world of actors as a child. Crawfords were needing a casting assistant. No business plan, no concept, no training. It's not something you could do now. Went to school on Friday, got on the bus on Saturday, auditioned for the show. They said, you've got the role. I never went back to school again. (laughs) Thank you. I've enjoyed being here talking about my favourite subject. You go and check me. <laughs> yeah, it's a date. <laughs> it's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft and career. It's 50 years since Alain Boublil and Claude Michel Schonberg first met and began a collaboration that would change the course of musical theatre history with their musicals Les Miserables and Miss Saigon. This September, leading stars from Broadway, the West End, France, Korea and Australia will gather to celebrate these unparalleled musicals and their writers in Do You Hear the People Sing? They'll be joined by a 24-piece orchestra and an ensemble of 12 singers. Among those talents assembled for the concert celebration is David Harris. A favourite performer on Australian stages, David now resides in the United States, where he's making his mark in a repertoire of great roles in a swag of great shows. He is currently with Moulin Rouge, performing the role of the Duke Monroth on an American tour. David began his professional career in the original Australian productions of The Boy From Oz and Mamma Mia. He gained critical acclaim for his portrayal of Chris in Claude Michel Schonberg and Alain Boublil's new production of Miss Saigon, which earned him Helpman and Sydney Theatre Award nominations. His Australian performances include Fierro in Wicked, Emmett Forrest in Legally Blonde, The Baker in Into the Woods and Tick in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. David returned to the Australian stage in 2021 to star as Anatoly Sergievsky in Chess. He relocated to New York City in 2014 and has continued to pave a career of great acclaim. He received a Connecticut Critics Circle Award nomination for Best Actor for his performance of Dan in Next to Normal. And he was triumphant as Jean Valjean in Les Miserables. David has starred as Billy Crocker in Anything Goes, as Father in Ragtime, and David originated the role of Max Bronfman in the new reworked production of Rags with Stephen Schwartz. David has an enormous appreciation of the musical theatre form, a craft that extends to the concert stage and recording. Stages caught up with David from Los Angeles as he was about to commence a five-show weekend of Moulin Rouge at the Pantages Theatre. 
David will soon take flight en route to Australia, where he will return to the stellar celebration of the work of Elaine Bobil and Claude Michel Schonberg in Do You Hear the People Sing? David Harris, hello, um, from Los Angeles. G'day, mate. How are you? Yeah, not bad. It's lovely to see your face again. And yours, too. It's been a while. It has been a while. Look, I think the last time uh, you were playing Billy Crocker at good speed in around 2016. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, that, yeah. That, I think that was the uh, the farewell to juvenile leads <laughs> for me. <laughs> I, w- I was a bit long in the tooth at the time. I was like, really? Am I still a Billy Crocker? But okay, I'll do it. <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> you had wonderful lighting. Yes. Well, <laughs> I can need all that and, and a lot of pancake. <laughs> And now you're touring around the United States um, with Moulin Rouge in the role of uh, Duke Monroff. Uh, it, yeah. it's, I imagine it's still thrilling audiences uh, around the country. That's a good thing about the, the tour, I guess, is that there's a lot of hype about it before it reaches each city. And you don't have any chance to get any kind of staleness happening because you're transferring again to a new environment, new theater, a new crew, a new enthusiasm from the audiences. Even though we're getting return business halfway through each season, wherever we are, we start getting all the return business again. So that creates another different energy because they know what's happening. There's fan favorites and all that kind of thing happening in the show. Um, So it's really good opportunity to see the country that I'm living and working in and um, to, to, to pack up and move along and and have that new enthusiasm every stop you go to and for a national tour this is this is kind of the the gold standard that we've got long sit downs we've been here for two and a half months in LA we did three months in Chicago we're about to go to San Francisco for about just over two months so they're nice long sits and you can kind of live somewhat as a local but be a working actor and 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 enjoy all the perks of that is there a press junket that goes along with, with each city that you, you have to do? Yeah. yeah. There's an overall um, marketing company and press and all that that oversee. We're, we're tied into the Broadway company as well. So uh, everything that happens on Broadway and our company kind of gets tied into one and there's been a lot of crossover publicity and marketing happening. And, um, and then obviously the local markets and the local theatres will work with the um, national Broadway and um, Moulin Rouge company, um, marketing companies. Well, the musical is uh, an American art form. They, they invented it. So I, I imagine uh, your audiences are, are quite enraptured by it, by what you're presenting. You have, have great attendance. Yeah, we have. And, you know, there's a lot of fans of the movie coming to see it, particularly here in LA with, with the movie industry. Um, so there's a lot of people very intrigued by the show because of the film. Um, and what they love about the film and know about the film and and then they come and see the stage show which is different to the film we've you know particularly my character for one it's it's very different portrayal and um, storyline attached to to the duke and the viable option that he is for Satine Um, and so it's 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 hearing a lot of comments of that people are passionate about the film and then seeing the show and going, well, it's different, but we like it all this or that. And so it's, it's causing a lot of conversation. And like I said, a lot of return business, which it's great for everyone involved, really, but the theaters, the producers and us as actors and, and the longevity of that. 
That is a brilliant new uh, take on on uh, Milan Rouge with the stage show that that uh, the Duke is a viable option for Satine, and uh, she's got uh, a difficult choice, it would seem. The and that was the discussion with Alex Timbers, our director, and when they were creating the show, they said that he needs to be a viable option. There needs to be some kind of drama and struggle for her. And oh, and I love <laughs> what I love about audiences' reactions is that they. They're, they're conflicted as, oh, but the Duke is really like, he's going to give her this and going to give her that. And, but, oh, but then he's controlling and he's this. And it's like, I, I, I kind of love to hate you, but I don't really hate you. And, and all the other things I've tried to layer into him as well is, you know, the vulnerability that why is he so controlling? Why is he nasty? What, where's that insecurity? And layering those things as an actor in, into some of the scenes so that it becomes more of a struggle for the audiences just to blanket wash him as the villain, uh, which I have no interest in in broad stroking him that way. You yes, could easily play him that way, but it's it's boring as an audience, I think, and boring for me as an actor to play that. So, um, you know, and the longer I stay in the show, <clears throat> and that's, this is what I love about a long running show, is that, you know, there, I guess there's some performers that like to check out and just, you know, paint by numbers by the time they get to this stage in a run I have no interest in doing that I want to find more and go deeper and find more nuances and more subtleties and and each show it's like I'm going to play it this way this time or fine tune here or oh that was a different reaction there I might kind of discover that a bit more tomorrow and I love that about a long running show that's that's the that's the the thrill for me to keep in in a in a long run and on a tour uh, with a new theatre, you know, every couple of months or so, it's it's giving you a chance to, um, uh, it's a freshness, isn't it, which is inbuilt into the um, the production season. Absolutely. And you, you get to meet a whole set of new local crew as well as our touring crew that travel with us. There's a core group, but then there's the local crew. So you're getting to meet a lot of them and, you know, they see so many shows moving through their theatre. And so it's like this brief romance that you have with all the locals, every city you go to. Um, and I'm enjoying that. And I'm, I'm, I think maybe, maybe as I'm, as I'm older too, I appreciate the crew a lot more than what I did in my youth. And, um, I spend a lot more time with them and chatting to them backstage. And I'm really enjoying that element of traveling around. Um, I think it's easy for younger people. And I probably was that myself. I would imagine I was where I somewhat dismissed the crew because we were actors and we're doing our thing. And so, you know, up your own bum a bit. And I just have learned over the years that how how awful that is and self-centered that is. And I'm, I really enjoy the locals and the, and the crew and going out for beers with them. And um, and I, 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 I see how possibly I could have been in the past and it's, Oh, that's evolution, isn't it? And that's growth and <laughs> absolutely. Maturity. It's it's a, uh, the musical theatre is a fascinating beast because you've got those three disparate tribes: the actors, the crew, and the musicians, who are all very musicians, different yeah. uh, personalities. But they come together uh, to to collaborate and create the, the magical thing, which is the musical. It is. It is fascinating that three very different worlds collide on one mutual gig that everyone's doing. Um, and there was a thing I created, um, in with this role, I've created my dressing room into a Duke's den and, and that's a good thing about the U S you can have a stocked bar. <laughs> you can't do that in Australia. <laughs> in your dressing room. <laughs> right. So 
Yeah, so you can, you know, invite the crew members or a band or someone who's like, hey, and I gave everyone a shot glass for opening night in Chicago. And so it was like, welcome to the Duke's Den, come whenever and come for a shot after the show. And it's, it's a great way to just have a nightcap and get to know all your crew when rather than during the show you can just have a nightcap at the end of the show and i'm hoping that will continue along with the tour as, as although it's harder and different theaters have different policies about having alcohol and whatever but having a nightcap nightcap after the show with crew and musicians it's and cast it's it's great do the theaters differ much in size uh and does that require some recalibration of performance when you when you go in yeah, I remember when we were, we just came from Denver um, before LA, and that was a it's the same size as actually the Pantages where we are in LA, twenty seven hundred, but it it was more of a barn, and they were quite distant, and so it then became oh, what's being lost because of that size, and how bigger do I need to go but still be authentic, um, you know, and then also matching your other cast members with how large or small they're playing so it, it was a very delicate thing to do in denver particularly because it was a much larger venue whereas the pantages here it's the same size but they seem closer so that's the beauty of having associate directors and now we have a resident director on tour with us just to hone all those things in because things inevitably get lost from the front row which see everything to the back row and you can't play evenly to all people and it's yeah. some people will miss things and other people you don't want to be too large and uh obnoxious for the front row <laughs> a tour sounds like a lot of fun and you get to see a, a lot of different things and meet new people but but what are the challenges of touring yeah um it's it's traveling around i'm 12 months on tour i won't go back to new york and home base uh within that time so i've got three suitcases and you've got to have all weather gear <laughs> from Chicago it was bitterly cold and wet. And now we're in LA, which is obviously sunny all the time and warm. And so you're traveling around snow boots as well as your summer gear, as well as a frying pan and a good knife that you like, you're going from different accommodations. Some is a service apartment type of thing. Some are hotels, some are a friend's apartment or Airbnb. Those things differ here in the US than what an Australian tour you know, Australian tour, you do your five major cities mm. and you're in service departments with really nothing that you need to bring to it. Here, it's a, it's slightly different, quite different actually, because you're in different types of accommodation wherever you go and it's up to you to source those primarily. And then you realize what comforts you can't live without and you're like, this is in my touring trunk. This is definitely the coffee maker is there because I'm not going to find good coffee along the way. I'm going to yeah. make it myself. You've got your good knife because you don't know what the the knife is going to be like to cook your meals in, in your good pan. And so it's that is the challenging part is keeping things contained so you can travel it around the country in three suitcases and not pick up things along the way. I'm very frugal now with what I purchase because it's like, nope, doesn't fit, won't fit, throw it out. <laughs> um, and that, in a sense, living somewhat simply for a year is is liberating. But that is a challenge because you, you miss all those kind of comforty things sometimes. And the other thing is, is when you go to a new city, you don't, you're not familiar with the landscape. And so you, okay, where do I get my groceries? How do I do that? The logistics of this. There's those things that happen and I'm discovering that 
the first couple of days in each city, I just have to get my bearings, I have to go get groceries. I need to, there's certain things I need to get done before we get into the theater to do that first audience. I need to set, set things up. Otherwise I'm scatterbrained for the first show. So, and, but everyone's different. Every cast member is different and every crew and they're all uh, got different priorities. So it's just working what those are for you and, and honing those as you go along. Do you get care packages from Australia? You know, your Vegemite and your Wheat Bix and chocolate. I did. Yeah. I did. I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Kat Talbot and Emma, Emma Powell. I, I didn't know who sent it to me. I, in Chicago, I'd, I'd run out of Vegemite and I'd posted about it. And then suddenly at stage door, I think it was like the day before we left Chicago. So it arrived there just in time. I got these two, two Vegemite jars with the Duke written on it because you could personalize it. And I was like, oh, yeah. who sent these? And it, it took me a while to work out who sent them. But it was then when I found out who did, it got made me homesick. And <laughs> um, yeah, definitely getting packages when people come over. And um, I'm heading, obviously, back to Australia, as we'll, we'll talk about. Um, I'll be stocking up on all those things to, to bring everything back. <laughs> so your days off, uh, I, I guess, are about exploring the city that you're in. Yeah. Along with some rest. And and rest and recuperation. And that's the other thing is finding out what you need as you travel around. And obviously when the longer sits are better. But once we move to other cities, we're going to Salt Lake City for two weeks and Costa Mesa for two weeks and Vegas for three weeks. Those shorter things like Costa Mesa, which is coming up uh, here in California, it's also Thanksgiving week. So we're going to be doing 11 shows straight to enable thanksgiving day off so by the time you land in the city tech very quickly tech show that afternoon with the local crew who your local dresser who doesn't know the show at all quickly refine any quick changes luckily i don't have any so mine's kind of a cushy transfer to a new city really compared to most of the other cast members um and then we perform that night in front of an audience with the crew not having run the show really before um and then we do 11 shows straight and then we have Thanksgiving and then four shows straight, then we leave. So that's that kind of thing. You're like, I don't think we're going to see anything mm -hmm. other than between accommodation and the theater. Um, but somewhere like LA, I've been able to have a car and get around and do things. And yeah, it, it's about discovering the city as much as you can, um, which is like, is it coming back to it? It's a great way to see the country and places in this country that I wouldn't normally just go on vacation in. It's Friday afternoon for you. You're about to start a five-show weekend. How do you pace yourself over those couple of days to ensure that you, each show you're able to give as much as the other? Yeah, and it is exactly about that. It's pacing yourself. It's like, okay, I don't, you know, Fridays are, uh, uh, I don't generally do a lot. It's about making sure you have food in the fridge stocking up because you're not going to do anything and you you know you've done with washing and everything because once that weekend the five five o'clock on a friday afternoon happens really it's go 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 and i'll see you uh, what 11 p.m on a sunday night when we wrap and then it's our day off and then it's like oh, you want to rest you don't want to do the groceries and do all those things but most people you ha sometimes have to it's like monday is your day off is your regroup your restock um i like to do it on friday so that i can actually chill out and we'll explore on Mondays. So it's, it's again, everybody is different, but that's what I can do. But then there's other cast members and crew that are doing rehearsals during the weekdays as well and understudy calls and, or publicity. We had a full day yesterday of publicity. We we're on the James Corden Late Late Show and 
it was an 8 a.m. call all day filming and and we we went straight from there bust into the the theater to do the show that night so today was like i just want to sleep in because yesterday was a whatever hour day and then perform last night um so it's just it's it's managing your time and knowing how you function with this type of schedule and um you know i've been around the block a bit to know how what i need and vocally what rest i need and this show particularly is a little, it's not huge vocally in a singing point of view, but it is, the character has got, I've made him a, a much deeper voice and he yells a lot and he, he has a gravel to it. So it's managing and finding that fine line there of um, doing that five shows over the weekend, but not needing so much repair on Monday. Um, and to be able to also sing up quite high, <laughs> but have this gravel to the voice as well it's that's a new thing for me on this job it's a new discovery of of that type of voice for me yes a, a, a new job new tricks new skills yeah exactly yeah. Yeah. and it's the first time playing a, a so-called villain so i'm i'm enjoying discovering what that means and and it's quite joyful yes. <laughs> i think i found my new my new era <laughs> villains are the best yeah there's so much juice to them i've i've not had the the joy to explore that before and i've really really enjoyed this and it discovering those things with him like i said before discovering more nuances and reasons why he is the way he is and um and and not being liked by the audience by the end <laughs> that's other than all the love interests i've i've been able to play this one uh, doesn't have the same reaction at the end of the show boo his <laughs> cheers boo -hiss. i don't get the girl yeah exactly <laughs> Yeah. Well, David Harris, let's go back to the beginning. You you grew up in Newcastle. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What were the artistic in influences? Maitland. Maitland, was it? That's Maitland, a suburb yeah. of New, Newcastle, is it? Or, ne or that's yeah, another town near Newcastle? Yeah, 45, 40-minute drive, another town, right. um, a bit more inland and north from Newcastle. Um, influences then was I'm, the first thing. I, I, my dad was a coal miner. Mum was a secretary, secretary for my uncle's air conditioning business. So there was no creative, artistic performance uh, influence from my family as such. Although mum's very creative, she's always been doing art or tapestry or anything like that. There's been a creative element from her, but not from a performance point of view. Were there any cast albums in the house? There was a Jesus Christ Superstar. I think everyone had that. <laughs> um, yeah, Jesus Christ Superstar. And maybe in Aspects of Love, because my eldest sister was into musicals. So she was the one who really introduced me. Um, and you know, they were records. Um, and so I used to play those on the, um, the record player. And then, uh, when I was, I think 14, I think the school group, uh, um, cats was in town at the Newcastle civic theater. And we went as a school group and I just didn't really know about musical theater at all, that that was even a thing. And I sitting in this audience, these performers in leotards and face makeup crawling all over the the chairs at the top of the show and i was amazed at what is this thing and i was like what people did this is a job people get paid this profession <laughs> it kind of sparked that was like i, I want to delve more into this and so i i i applied because i didn't get into the choir in primary school i got tapped on the head and was like no you can't sing and so i thought oh the school music, the school drama teacher, my English teacher in year eight, wanted to put on a musical, and 
in the school I went to, it was just not any kind of artistic or um, creative thing was not fostered by really anybody. It was very much a sport school, which I wasn't very into at all and very good at either if I did give it a go. Um, and so he wanted to put on a musical and I was like, well, no one's putting up their hand. I was like, I'd seen Cats. It looked fun. All right, <laughs> I'll, I'll see what that's about. And I got cast as, as the lead, which was Man of Steel. It was a Superman. And I was, but I was so skinny. Like I was, there was nothing Superman about me, but no other silly bugger would do it. So it was kind of a necessary casting of me, I think, because no one else would do it. And that's when I kind of discovered that I had a basic, very raw singing voice that could hold a tune by then. Um, and that's kind of what sparked it was my English drama teacher. And then there was a, although I got ribbed terribly by everybody at school and picked on because I was in this Superman outfit that dripped off me. It was, there was, it was lycra, but it, there was no cling at all. I was so skinny. The home economics teacher that made the costume had to keep taking it in going, oh, you must be able to sing, she said, because you don't look like Superman. <laughs> Thank you. Added to the confidence of being on stage. Well, everyone was kind of booing and hissing me because I was doing this thing that no one thought was cool at all. Was it, was it just teasing or bullying? Yeah. It was quite severe. Uh, Oh, it was quite severe. Yeah, yeah. There was a lot of name calling. There was, there was, you know, I, I remember getting spat on by the older guys at school while I played handball and called every name under the sun. Um, yeah, they were not fun years school for me at all. I, no, I, you know, mum used to say, "Oh, school's are you, school is the best years of your life." I was like, "No way, no way, not for me." Not growing up in in that environment, trying to do performing and, and singing because back then we didn't have the glee or the the Australian idols or all those things that made singing cool. We had young talent time and that was about it. Uh, and it just wasn't cool. Um, so it, it was, yeah, I didn't have fun. I remember getting, we caught a train trip from New, uh, Maitland to Newcastle one time. And I remember older kids from the school picked on me and, and you know, gave, gave me a good, Good uh, punch in the face just for being the the the, the little sissy that does, does musical theatre and sings at school. Um, it was yeah, it was awful. I didn't like it at all. And when when you're in it, it it seems endless, like it will will never stop. But it does get better eventually. It does get better, and I'm I'm very grateful that I had a family environment that I felt very loved in. So it wasn't. Not that they knew at all, mum and dad, what what was going being done until eggs got thrown at the house. Then mm. they discovered that something that was, was ex up. extreme. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, people going past the house, yahooing and throwing eggs and calling me names. Um, I look back at that now, and I was like, it was torturous in in a way. And I, I, I don't. I, I guess the only way I really got through that was because of my home environment was loving and caring. Um, and I could talk to, to mum about that and I felt very loved and cared. So I think that was my saving grace. And I had a couple of friends at school who were close. And so I could, I wasn't alienated at school. Um, I had you know, four really good friends that we were the nerds together. <laughs> you know, I was school captain as well 
in both primary and high school. So I was nerdy, geeky, not popular, not cool. Um, oh, pardon me. That's, oh, there you go. Is that your agent? Uh, yeah. Yeah, all those offers that are coming in. <laughs> um but then yeah it's it's then i got into another drama teacher needed someone for starstruck which is a newcastle it was like the um, the newcastle version of the school spectacular which yep. happens in sydney so i got into both of those and there i found my tribe there were other kids that loved doing what i was doing solo by myself at school and that's when I, I really was like, there's a whole world of similar people that I can hang out with and I'm not alone in all this. And maybe, maybe I could do more of this. Um, and so I quit university after three days and um, decided to move to Sydney and see what this performing thing was all about. It was a real crossroad thing. Now I look at it in, in hindsight, it was a brave thing to, I wouldn't do it now probably, <laughs> but as a, as you know, a 17 or 18 year old going, I'm going to quit my architecture degree and move to Sydney and try this singing thing out that I know there's a tribe of people, other people that do it. Um, and I wish I had told my younger self or could tell younger self that it would be all okay. There are other people out there. You have a family there. You have a community. Um, and I wonder what other, other kids in especially rural areas that aren't influenced or have that. Um, the trauma that they must go through, not just as a, you know, if it's their performing, whatever it is, is not mainstream that they wish to do. Um, it's sad that, that kids struggle like that. And I'm glad I, I had that loving environment to not cause too much trauma, I guess. And that was one of the reasons I, I started this podcast so that, yeah, yeah, kids in rural areas, I was a kid in a rural area, can hear stories like this and be assured that it'll be okay in the long run. You just... Uh... Yeah, that patience to get through it. Were your parents uh, happy and supportive about a career in the arts for you? Yeah, they were. And that's one thing I say that, I mean, my parents were not in any financial position to throw money at me and buy me a car or do any of this stuff. But what they did me, which gave me, sorry, which was invaluable, was that is the, the support to follow whatever I wanted to do. So the day I came home from university, which is like after the second day, I said, I, I think I'm going to try and defer or quit if I had to, but defer for the year and move to Sydney. They were like, go for it. We can't advise you. It's out of our realm of what we know, um, but we'll support you with whatever choice you want to do. And, and, and it's that is I didn't get any pushback. All I got was support and love and that is invaluable. I'm so grateful for that moment because that was, I have no trauma from that. I felt so supported and moving to Sydney from the country with, again, not knowing anybody in Sydney was traumatic. And I remember packing up a trailer with a bed on it and um, a bookcase and something else, a bedside table that I'd gotten from a garage sale in, in Maitland. I was like, well, I need to set up a room in Sydney and trucking down with mum and dad in the car to go to this apartment that I was sharing with people I didn't know and it's um it feels like a very different different kid I, I can't believe it was actually me um but it is a very vivid memory of packing up and doing that whole move out of home thing and move to the big smoke which was Sydney and not knowing what on earth I was going to do well it's a great but, sequence yeah. 
for the David Harris film. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it, it wouldn't be. It wouldn't. It was like it leaving Pauper Spit. See ya, Pauper Spit. <laughs> <laughs> Rather leave while I'm in love, while I still believe the meaning of the word. I'll keep my dreams and just pretend that you and I were never meant to end. Many times I've seen the rose die on the vine. Somebody's heart gets broken. Usually it's mine. I don't want to take the chance of being hurt again. And you and I can't say goodbye. So if you wake and find me gone just carry on you see I need my fantasy I still believe it's best to leave while I'm in love the boy from Oz your professional debut I think that's when I first met you I was behind the bar at uh, Her Majesty's um, yeah, match. You, you didn't know anyone in Sydney. How how does the audition for Boy from Oz come about? How do you you get in there? It's a really fascinating story. I um I had done Talent Quest when I was in you know, um, late in high school and going around the RSL clubs and doing that. And I was always always um, fascinated and in love with Peter Allen songs. I, I just loved the storytelling, I love the emotion behind them. And so I'd been singing Peter Allen stuff for a number of years and I tried to get an agent when I moved to Sydney. I thought, well, I'll, I'll get my VHS tape of me singing at my talent quest <laughs> together <laughs> and, um, and send it out with a, a cover letter. Although I, I wish I kept it, I wish I kept all these things, but it wasn't a cover letter. It was like 10 pages of what I'd done, which was not much, it was just talent quest. I don't know how I filled up pages of so-called work that I'd done. Um, and no agent touched it. No one, I didn't either, didn't get response or they were like, no, no way. But one agent did, Kevin Hanley. No, Kevin Hanley. Yeah, Kevin, yeah. Yeah. And he said, come in for a meeting. And I was all nervous. I went in and met with this agent. He said, look, I think that you, you would benefit to go to somewhere like WAPA and learn the craft. And, um, and then, you know, in three years time, message and we'll have another chat he said but in the meantime i saw in your vhs tape that you sing peter allen songs and they're they're doing a brief has just come out to to do a workshop of a new peter allen musical that they want to to get up and running i could put you in contact with the person that's running those auditions and you know he didn't want anything from it just i'll put you in contact and it was that chance moment and that contact which was again the sliding doors thing, which we all have those moments, but it was that that was that projected the rest of my career because I went and did this audition, saying I think "Don't Cry Out Loud," and for whatever reason I can't remember how the rest of it transpired, 
but I got to do the workshop of The Boy From Oz. Um, and uh, imposter syndrome <laughs> completely that I shouldn't have been there. I had no, no um, skill set as far as everyone else I was working with on that workshop. And um, I did the workshop, that had finished. Then I went and took a job on a cruise ship and I'd heard that the boy from Oz was auditioning for the actual show. I was on the B list to do it. Someone had turned it down. I don't know who that person was, but thank you. And I got offered an ensemble track uh, in the original production of Boy From Oz. But it was from that chance introduction from Kevin Hanley to meet someone at the workshop, to do the workshop. And that then when the offer came through, it was because somebody had turned it down. Um, and then I spent two years, and that was my training ground because I tried to get into Whopper and they didn't accept me. I tried to get into NIDA, that wasn't accepted either. So these doors were closing, but this boy from Oz door opened up uh, and the rest is history. I sat with two, the two years with, with Boy From Oz and then went on to Mamma Mia after that. And Boy From Oz was my training ground. It was working with these amazing, incredible performers and learning on the job. <laughs> very green, very nervous every, every day. Suddenly I'm in high heel tap shoes. I've never, never tapped before in my life. <laughs> and then I remember during rehearsals, um, they came up and said, oh, would you understudy uh, Chris Bell? I didn't even know what an understudy was. <laughs> I had to call my agent that had finally accepted me. Um, and I said, they want me to do an understudy, but I don't know what that is. <laughs> and uh, she said, oh, you have to learn that role. And when they can't go on, you, you go on and you get paid more. I went, okay, I'll do that. So I learned Chris Bell. And then they gave me... Um, uh, Peter's boyfriend, Greg. Yes. Greg. Then they gave me Greg understudy as well. Um, so yeah, that's how that all unfolded. I suddenly was in the ensemble with two understudies and I got to go on for both of them and spend two years. Um, I've just uh, had a recollection. It was Kevin Palmer. Kevin Hanley was a production manager. Palmer, thank Co you. Company manager. Kevin yeah. Hanley was the company manager. Yes. That's why I was like, oh, hang on, it doesn't... Kevin Palmer. Yeah, it was Kevin Palmer. Working with a stellar cast, of course, in that original production, Todd McKenney, of course, who played Peter Allen, but elders like Jill Perryman and, um, mm -hmm. and then, of course, uh, Murray, Bart Murray, ba Chrissy Amplett, Murray Bartlett, who's now gone on to great things yeah. in the States, playing Greg. Fantastic things here in the States, yeah. Um, yeah, it was, you look back at that cast and it's phenomenal. And that was, that was who I was suddenly around and learning from. So you're training as an apprenticeship? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. On the job learning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Go on. That's no. what I tell them, um, um, you know, when we do meet and greets with school kids and stuff when we're in shows and oh, I want to do this and this. And I was like, that's great if you want to go and study. And I think it's fantastic. Just that door never opened for me. I tried to get in to study and it didn't happen. So this other door happened instead. So there are multiple paths to get somewhere and none of them are guaranteed but just take the path that's available and see where it leads. Um, that's the moral of that story, I guess, because I could have gone, oh, I didn't get in and I, I just don't don't uh, try again. But it's just all those, you know, those lucky coincidences or whatever you want to call them that just laid out the, the, the map then for where else I would go. Why does Saigon never sleep at night? Why does this girl smell of orange trees? How can I feel good when nothing's right? 
Why is she cool when there is no breeze? Vietnam, you don't give answers, dear friend. Just questions that don't ever end. Why, God? Why today? I'm all through here, on my way. There's nothing left here that I'll miss. Why send me now a night like this? Who is the girl? That rusty bed. Why am I back in a filthy room? Why is a voice ringing in my head? Why am I high on a cheap perfume? Vietnam. Hey, look, I mean no offense, but why does nothing here make sense? Why, God, show your more I've never felt confused before succession of roles in, in musical theatre in Australia, of course, uh, leading to, to huge roles. Uh, I suppose the biggest role that, that you may have played is Chris in uh, Miss Saigon, which is a role that demands not only great vocal prowess, but a huge emotional journey. Tell me about Chris. How you just described it then, I just got goosebumps because it's <laughs> such a sensory memory for me. It was It was the toughest gig I've ever done at the time and since um it's the one with the most trauma attached to it for me but with the most highs for it as well the, the lowest lows and the highest highs it was like you said my first kind of big role um i felt the weight on my shoulders emotionally i tried to go there emotionally every show and there's a cost to that which i didn't know i just wasn't mature enough to know yeah. as we you know circle back to what you said what you require now on, on a Friday afternoon before a five show weekend, you know how to manage things. Back then I just did not know how to manage an eight show a week doing a demanding role that was at the top of my range. Um, and and I, I'm, I'm really living a bit at the moment because <clears throat> the role of Christian um, in Moulin Rouge is a very similar vocal demand. And our wonderful Christian here on tour, Connor, uh goes there emotionally every show and he's trying to discover that balance between have, being able to balance it out and and back it up show after show matinee and five show weekends and and trying to find that and you can only find it with yourself you can't no one can teach you it's just the way in which you have to find that balance and i didn't have a mentor that pulled me aside and do this do that or manage that it was just it felt like a war zone that I just had to go through myself. And there were shows where I 
crashed and burned. There was I took so much time off because vocally I'd I'd spent it the night before and I needed repairing. I didn't know how to. I didn't have enough time to repair the voice. And um, we we're just talking about it the other day at work. Have you ever gone off mid-show? I was like. Miss Saigon was the one and only time I've ever gone off mid-show because it just, I came back after being sick and I thought it was fine. And once that show starts, it, it plows through until the end of last night of the world. And by then I had no voice and I was crying. <laughs> it was, I could feel that the audience, the whole audience was like, what's wrong with him? And but no one else noticed, it was all in my head. And oh, there was so much going on in that show. And the emotional content of the show as well. And I got along so beautifully well um, with Laurie Cadavita, who played Kim. Um, and, you know, watch as much as you can separate role and, and reality, watching her die in your arms every night, um, because we were so close, it was even more devastating and more raw each night, which feels amazing to do as an actor. You just have to back it up eight times a week, which I did not know how to do. And um, Juan Jackson, who played John, I remember him saying once, he said, this this job for you is either going to make you or break you. And it, it, it was that. I, I it had, By the end of 18 months, it had broken me. I wasn't enjoying singing. I was spent and I just thought, I don't know whether this is for me. I can't do this. Uh, so I took a break and I did, and actually doing the, my first album was my therapy back, was just getting back with just a piano and just this beautiful light <laughs> lyrical singing. Um, that was therapy for me to get me back into in, enjoying singing again and loving singing. Um, but in hindsight, it was the best gig I could ever have. It's such a weird thing. It was the most traumatic, but I learned so much. It was the biggest challenge but I'm so grateful for it all. Well, it stood you in good stead, I imagine, uh, for the preparation of playing a role like Jean Valjean in Les Miserables, mm -hmm. which again is a big sing, same composers, um, and a huge emotion. It was the same journey. director when I was auditioning for it as well, when it was coming back to Australia, and all the Saigon memories and sensory memories and trauma came back, and it was like, that was it was interesting to see what baggage was still there that lingered when I was going through that process to do Valjean. Bring him peace, bring him joy, he is young, he is only a boy. Can tell. 
like you said, it's the same composer, same director, same everything. It was like, everything's going to be the same. And I didn't handle Miss Saigon very well. I'm not going to handle Valjean. I'm not <laughs> so um, I, I'm grateful I didn't get that opportunity to do that. Um, but I did get to do it in, in the States. Um, and it was a shorter period with, for me, less pressure and less responsibility on my shoulders um, and less out of the limelight that I could just go and enjoy the score. And I absolutely loved it. Didn't miss the show, sang it all beautifully. <laughs> and it was, again, therapy that I could go and do Valjean and know that I could do all that without the, the added personal pressure that I would place on myself. Well, you get to return to the music of Schomburg and Bobil in uh, Do You Hear The People Sing? You're you're coming out to Australia uh, again very soon. Does that mean you have time off Moulin Rouge to, to come out for the concerts and then return? Yeah. When, yeah. Uh, uh, Do You Hear The People Sing was supposed to happen numerous times before, but, we, you know, there's been a number of setbacks over the last couple of years. Um, so I knew it was on the cards um, if it was able to get up and running again. So... Um, I was able to negotiate this time off uh, ahead of time when I was negotiating uh, Moulin Rouge contracts. So uh, I'm taking my vacation time to come back to Australia to do it, uh, which I'm really excited about because, <laughs> again, it's kind of like therapy. I've done these concerts or variations of, there's new incarnations each time we do it. Um, it's therapy because I can go and sing the Chris material and the Valjean material and not have the pressure of doing the through line of the intensity eight times a week. <laughs> so it's kind of the, the, the great way to do it now. <laughs> uh, it's a concert celebration that you've, you've done it before, haven't you, in Shanghai and Manila and Taipei? So in Taipei, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's, like I said, it's, it's been an incarnation of this, the concert. They keep on changing and morphing into different variations and, and versions and the cast keep changing and we've had a lovely, um, I think I've, I've probably sung nearly every song in that's in the concerts now because of the different variations of the show formats that we've done. So I could probably cover all the the, the um, songs. Uh, can you give us a hint? What are some of the numbers that, that you'll be performing? Uh, Last Night of the World, but I'm definitely doing Chris stuff. Right. I'm do there's a beautiful rendition of Bring Him Home that's happening. Um, Martin Gare. Uh, and I'm assuming I'm allowed to say, I don't know, that there's a whole new set of lyrics for Martin Gare, which I'm steadily trying to learn because the old lyrics are so ingrained in my mind uh, and they're completely new. So I'm, I'm still studying that, uh, which would be great to air that there. And there's, you know, the concerts are a great way to to display or to, to inform how these shows were up and running, got up and running, how they were created, the history behind, the story behind, why they're rewriting certain things. And there's another premiere of a, of a version of a song that's happening in these concerts. So it's, and you get to hear from um, Bublil and, Sch and Schomburg th themselves, and they will be there. It's it's an amazing opportunity for Australian audiences to to see this, this material done again, but also the history behind the material from the people who, who created it. You um you'll be performing alongside Michael Ball. We uh we we did uh the first one together. We did Taipei together, and we did um Shanghai together. Um, but I also did Michael's tour when he was in Australia a couple of decades ago. His World of Musicals tour. I was his backing vocalist with Kay Tuckerman. Um, that was an interesting audition process too. 
so I've known Michael for a, a long while, so it'll be great to see him again and work with him. Um, he's always a joy. We went suit shopping together in, in Shanghai <laughs> together because you can get your suits made for 100 bucks or something or 50 bucks. Uh, so we, we did that together. It, it'll be fun to see him again and work with him and with, with John as well, who I don't think he'd remember, but he came out to Australia to do a, a Lloyd Webber one-off concert. It was a corporate gig for Toyota, I think. And um, he was the headliner for that, and we worked together. But I don't think he'd remember me from that. But this is John, John Owen Jones. John Owen Jones, yes, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. David, part of your, your journey in the States, I would assume, would be to create a, a new role in a new musical. Have you had yeah. a chance to do that yet? I've had a chance to be on a workshop and a reading presentations of. Um, there's a show called uh, Indigo, which is about an autistic child. And it, I, I hope that a friend of mine who wrote the, the music and lyrics for, so I really hope that takes off because I think it would be a really important show. Um, so I got to play the dad in that, in one of the readings. Um, but also a, a, a re worked production of Rags, uh, um, Stephen Schwartz show, uh, which we did up in Goodspeed here in Connecticut, one of the um, top regional theatres here. Um, and so they created a new role, kind of a little bit Duke-esque actually, a role called Max Bronfman. Uh, so I got to create that role in this kind of out of town tryout, which I'm assuming they'll, hopefully it'll have legs. I think it's just still a London thing, London uh, presentation of it. Um, but that that is that is something I would like to tick off is to to create a role, you know, do the cast album, all that kind of thing. Because I've yet to have that experience either in Australia or here uh, to be the originating um, actor on a role. Um, I love Rags. I think it's a the most sensational score. Um, cool. I've had a chance to to deal with it twice in my my life. Um, oh, really? Yeah, I, I directed a school high school production um, which featured Chelsea Gibb as Rebecca a long time ago. And uh, then I played Avram at Whopper. Mm -hmm. um, we did it there. But um, it, it's the book always seemed to be the issue. There were, there were so many little stories that didn't quite come together. Yeah. So has That's that what they reworked. Been... Yeah. Yeah. The, the book was really deconstructed and, and worked. And that's why, you know, this new character of, of Max Bromfman came in as a love triangle kind of thing happening. And so it, it simplified and and... I really do hope it gets late because it was really emotional and the audiences loved it. Um, so I'm, I'm hoping for the creators that they can get that new version out. Um, and like you said, the, the score is stunning. It's beautiful music. Well, David Harris, it's been lovely um, catching up with you again. Um, all the best Likewise. for Moulin Rouge. And um, uh, do you hear the people sing, which is playing in Melbourne at Haim Hall, 27 and 28th of September, and then at the Sydney Opera House Concert Hall, 30th of September to the 2nd of October. Um, all the best. We look forward to seeing you again. Thanks, mate. All right. See you. Bye. Bye. Do You Hear the People Sing will be an extraordinary event, celebrating the magnificent repertoire and talents of Elaine Boublil and Claude Michel Schomburg. Do You Hear the People Sing features an international cast that includes Michael Ball, John Owen Jones, Rachel Tucker, Bobby Fox, Suha Kim, Susie Mathers, Marie Zamora, and my guest today, 
David Harris. The show is presented by Endemarkey and Stages wishes the entire company a triumphant season. Do You Hear the People Sing plays Melbourne uh, September 27 and 28 and Sydney September 30th to October 2nd. You don't want to miss this fabulous celebration of the music of uh, the two men who have given us such shows as Les Miserables, Miss Saigon and Martin Gare. Thanks for joining us in this episode. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time on Stages. Stages.